Alright, we're back with a new episode. Today I want to break down as much as I can in this session of Miyamoto Musashi's Dokkodo, which is a set of precepts that he wrote uh, towards the end of his life. And basically, uh, they're kind of guidelines for how to live and guidelines for uh, how to organize your mind in the way that you approach life. And uh, I read this a long time ago. When I first got out of high school, I read his uh, book, Five Rings, Gordin no Sho. And I thought it was awesome. I didn't understand a lot of it. I came from, you know, I'm, I'm a Western individual. I come from a Western background. My thinking is Western. My philosophy is Western. Uh, my experience with religion was Western. So to mold to the eastern mindset was difficult but something resonated with me deeply about the eastern mindset and uh around that time i also read the Tao Te Ching, which was like extremely influential on me and uh zen and eastern eastern philosophy in general buddhism uh, shintoism these things informed my worldview and when I read them again when I was a little bit older, I realized that I actually had started internalizing these concepts and was like rediscovering them in a, and seeing them in a new light. And it was so interesting to me because when I first read them, I was coming at them from like an alien perspective. It was like a new, it was like an opening to a portal, to a new world. And, uh, it was so foreign to me and so exciting. Then when I came back to it years later, I realized that uh, the way that I'd organized my own life lined up with a lot of what these people were saying. And it was a beautiful confirmation of how I'd been feeling and how I'd been thinking. And Musashi's book and uh, the precepts that he laid, that he, uh, laid down, that it, started, it started me on that journey in a sense, or it was a big part of the start of that journey. So I want to honor that and I want to talk about his precepts that he wrote down. And uh, so if you don't know who Miyamoto Musashi is, uh, he's actually a very famous swordsman. Uh, he lived about four or five hundred years ago uh, in feudal Japan. He was a samurai, killed his first man when he was very young and he went on to kill or at least uh, by his own words, and I would have to fact check this, but he fought roughly 60 duels, I believe. Uh, he's very famous. People in the business world love to read his work. Very interesting character. And one of those characters where you're like, well, I can't believe this guy's real, man. Like This person actually existed. Just this peerless warrior traveling from place to place. And there's not a whole lot of uh, literature to support any claims of fraudulence or that he's a charlatan or that he lied. And I'm sure, look, humans, they're not perfect and many of them tend to embellish and memory's a fickle thing and we can't exactly recall to mind exactly what happened to us. But he was a very impressive individual and he lived a remarkable life. But he was a, it was a violent man. That said, he lived in a violent time. Uh, that, in that era, your role models were violent men. The samurai were a caste of warrior. And you can, you can look at the history of the samurai. It's a bloody one. But they lived by a certain code. And whether or not all of them lived by that code... I think we can safely say they didn't. It's like anything, right? Human nature is human nature. You can have 10 people in a room. You can have 10 Christians in a room and they all have a different idea of Christianity, right? And humans are weak. We're fallible, all right? We're mortal. We're prone to so many. It's what makes us human. We're prone to so many emotions and vulnerabilities, uh, deceptions of the mind, ego traps, that not all of us live exactly how we try to 
we don't we don't follow our morals to a T. You know, we err and we're weak and we're lustful and we're stupid and we're you know, we don't always make the decisions that are best for us and others. Alright, but this was one man's attempt to live his life with meaning and purpose. And uh I think he's a voice that we should consider because like it's it's and it's an important question like why listen to this guy you know why are we listening to this psychopath who killed probably hundreds of people uh was known for showing up late to duels and frustrating his opponents to the point that they made mistakes that he cap- would capitalize on uh this man that killed his first man when he was very young whose legacy is one of bloodshed and violence why do we listen to him well First of all, we listen to him because that's also our legacy. Now, you or I might not have killed anybody, but we live in a cosmos where life feeds on death. And you can't debate that, really. You can't debate that. At some point, you have to accept the fact that your life comes at a consequence of other lives. And that that's okay, because that's how the game's set up and there's no escaping it. And even were you to kill yourself the life and death battle would just continue. It would just persist. You wouldn't have stopped it. By deciding not to participate, you haven't really alleviated any suffering. You've just created a vacuum and suffering is going to fill that vacuum. So, when we see a man like that, we listen to him because he's experienced things on a scale that we haven't. And whenever someone experiences things that you haven't, it's a great opportunity to learn, okay? Anyone who's got a different lived experience to yours, you can learn from. And a man like this has a very, very unique experience. So think of like the Michael Jordans of the world. Think of the uh, Muhammad Ali's. Think of all these outstanding sportsmen, the Tiger uh, Woods, the Roger Federer's. Think about these people. They... They are the outliers among outliers. And particularly in the case of, say, like Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, these people are flawed. And they're flawed, why? Because they're human. And probably because they're flawed that they become such outliers. Because to become such an extreme outlier, you need a certain craziness. It's simply the case, like you need a certain ego, you need a certain sense of self-importance, you need a certain demon that drives you towards becoming an outlier, that drives you towards doing insane things to achieve insane results. And I'm not necessarily one that believes in productivity above all else and achievement above all else, but I believe in learning. I believe in looking at what successful people have done, understanding it, seeing where I can replicate it, discarding what's not useful, and trying to learn by their example and take their lessons so I don't have to learn them on my own. That's why I love books. I love books because it's the lived experience of people who are not me, and I can learn so much from it, and it enriches me. It enriches me in such a beautiful way because now I can draw on experiences that I've never had. And this gentleman's experiences were so... Just the cutting edge and the peak of human mastery and dealing with peak human emotion, adrenaline, fear, doubt. This man fought life or death battles one after the other after the other and lived to old age. There's that old cliche, um, something along the lines of you should fear an old man in a profession where men die young. He's a great example. This man died of cancer in a cave in his uh, 50s or 60s. In a world where you had to fight for your life pretty regularly, that's the world that he existed in. That's the era that he was from. That was his caste. His father was a samurai. It was his destiny. And I think what's so interesting about him is the dichotomy and to anyone who's like 
to I suppose to a lot of older people, though I don't want to assume, we realize that humans have many dimensions. But it's not so apparent, and it's not so obvious when someone who's such a peerless warrior is recognized as a sword saint, which is basically a title that only one person really can have. And he had another dimension to him that was so introspective. And he was an artist. And his paintings still exist to this day. He was a poet. He was a calligrapher. This man was tempered by the arts. He was a ferocious warrior who speaks of crushing the enemy when you feel them falter. Who dueled with two swords, who would charge ranks of men by himself. And on the other hand, he was a thoughtful and quiet philosopher. And there's something so alluring about that, especially I can attest to this, being a man, a part of you wants to be a warrior and wants to be respected as someone who's capable more than anything. Not necessarily a warrior in the sense that you fight regularly, but a warrior in the sense that in whatever domain, whatever your battlefield is, you are seen as capable and you are capable and you're able to hold your own and you're able to overcome challenges. That's super important. It's super important to our biology. It, it makes us feel good. But on top of that, we also have that side of us that's very vulnerable. We have that side of us that's creative rather than destructive, that seeks harmony and peace that's looking for an inner transformation wherein we find satisfaction in the small things, an eye for beauty, an appreciation of life. And Musashi embodies those things. In fact, he is an embodiment of those things, the light and the dark, right? the black and white, the yin and yang. He represents that. And... Uh, so I'd like to read his precepts one by one and talk about them a little bit, see how much I cover in this episode, and then we'll go into them uh, in later episodes. Maybe we'll do three parts, maybe two, we'll see how we go. But I think that uh, rather than taking anything as law, rather than taking anything as this is how it should be done, like Ten Commandments, don't think about them as commandments. Think about them as suggestions. Think about them as ideas. Let them germinate in your mind and see if the garden of your mind can sustain them or if, it, if your mind requires other plants to grow and to thrive. Because we're not all the same and we all have different requirements in life. However, broadly, I think principles are universal. So, if you cut to the heart of what he's saying, you'll find a certain truth in it beyond the words, because words can only have a point. I think that's the beauty of words, but it's also the downfall of words, because they can only ever suggest something. Remember Bruce Lee's quote? It's like a finger pointing at the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you'll miss all the heavenly glory. Don't worry about the words. Don't concentrate on the words. Let your mind be carried. Let your attention be carried to where the words are pointing. Okay? So I've got the Wikipedia here with all his precepts. I'm going to read them one by one. Alright? And then I'm going to discuss them. And uh, so I'll read one, then I'll discuss it, then I'll read the second one. And we'll see how far we get. Okay? So, welcome, and enjoy. So, the first one, and there's 21 precepts in the Dokkodo. The first one, accept everything just the way it is. Now, this is, this is quite powerful, because this might be the hardest one. <laughs> now, I'm going in quite blind, I've forgotten most of them. But this really might be the hardest one. 
accept everything the way it is, the things are so messed up. The world's filled with so much pain, so much tragedy, so much injustice, so much disparity. Accept everything the way it is. This took me a while. And it took me a while to get on board with this because of all the reasons I mentioned. It didn't seem like it was the right thing to do to accept everything the way it is. However, after long enough, and when you look at human history, you realize it's the story of people trying to change the world and make the world better. And while we may or may not make progress, like that's debatable, And I don't want to go into that because I don't have the stats and I don't have the data and I'm not smart enough to be able to create a a clear enough picture of if that's possible. Even if we assume that it is, like let's assume that the world's getting better. It gets better in such micro steps. It gets better in terms of many generations of humans. If you look at history... So many people with good intentions do horrible things, terrible things. And if you look at history, so many people who may or may not have good intentions, however, who are trying to elicit change, they actually think that the end justifies the means and they try to impose their will upon the world. And in my opinion, it's pretty clear that this is not correct and never justifies the means, okay? Except for very select circumstances wherein you need to defend yourself, wherein uh, survival's at stake of your loved ones, of your community. But otherwise, to implement social change, the end does not justify the means because first of all, there's such a hubris in that, so much arrogance to assume that you know the way forward, right? That you're 100% sure that your system of thought is the one to govern all the people. Such arrogance in that, especially because we're such a short-lived species. Um, and so, when you look at everything the way it is with all of its issues, it's like one thing gets better at the cost of something else. So you say you elevate this group of people, you kind of shove the other group of people down to do so. We can see this a lot in today's climate. Like to bring up a racial group, you have to you have to bring down or take opportunity from another. Or at least that's how people have tried to do that. And people have agendas, man. People, because the brain, or rather, because the mind is always looking for ease and comfort, or at least <laughs> at least it appears that way, we always want things for free. We always want things as quickly and easily as possible. And so, we always have an agenda to make things easier for ourselves, and that it doesn't matter so much if it comes at the cost of someone else because that's not us. We don't have to worry about that. And then so we look for reasons to rationalize why the other people are bad, why the other people deserve the things that are happening to them. But we miss the fact that they do that to us. But maybe we don't care. We're so angry and we're so embittered at the world. We don't care. We're like, whatever, I'm on top now and I'm going to take every little bit of juice from this fruit. It's a problem because it denies the humanity of other people. And whenever you do that, you become like the dictator and the oppressor in the first place. And what you're really doing is you're creating a cycle. So you might be on top now and you might stay on top for many years. There's Chinese dynasties that lasted for centuries. But eventually you're going to be overthrown. And eventually your group's going to become the oppressed. And when the next group comes on top, you're going to pay for it. And until someone makes a change, the cycle continues like that. Until someone says, we're on top, 
but we're not going to make the same mistakes of the past. Until that happens, the cycle will continue because for something to change, there needs to be a precedent. Or rather, for something to change on a wide scale, there needs to be an example. No. We need to see that there's another way. People need hope. Okay, because people are so preoccupied with all the little things in their lives. Bills to pay, mouths to feed. They've got their own little ills and social worries and troubles, no? So, whenever we create disparity to elevate ourselves, we're actually complicit in evil. And it takes a toll on you. And I think we each know this deep down. And it manifests in a series of ills that might not just be mental, they might also be physical as well. And science is showing that. Now it's showing how much stress plays a role in the function of our body and how we can make ourselves ill psychosomatically. And so coming back to precept one, when you start to accept everything the way it is, you don't you don't become apathetic. That's not how it works. When you accept everything the way it is, you're actually taking a step towards wisdom because you realize that things can only happen in the way that they've happened. Our ancestors did the best with what they had at the time. Everything has a causal relationship. It's like dominoes. But the world that we live in is so complex, we can't always see the causal link between things. But there's no doubt that there's a causal link because we only have to observe the phenomena of nature to understand that. Like if you look at, um, say, a cloud, you look at the evaporative force from the sun, the water rises, it condenses, it becomes a cloud, then it precipitates, it falls back down to earth, it runs through the rivers. Humans are a part of that system, so it makes sense that we follow those same natural laws. So if you look at a cloud, in essence, you're like that, just far more complex. So complex, in fact, that you're able to view and assess the way that your mind works. You're embedded in the structure. You're able to be a witness behind the curtain of everything that's going on, of all the processes. So when you understand this causal link, you can begin to forgive people and you can begin to realize that nature takes its course as horrible and as bloody and as squirrely and sometimes bleak as it may seem. It is what it is and everything beautiful in this world cannot exist independent of everything horrible. Everything that is awful and ugly has a relationship with the beautiful. From the shit and from the rotting dead grow beautiful flowers, grow crops, food. There's a cycle. There's a relationship. There's a yin and a yang. And when you begin to accept everything the way it is, you can see both sides of the coin. And a certain peace comes over you and you start to live with a sense of appreciation for life. You start to live with a sense of appreciation for all aspects. And that doesn't mean that you can't strive for something better. In fact you'll probably end up striving for something better because, well, it's the best thing to aim at and it's the most difficult thing to aim at, no? It's much more difficult to aim for beauty and it's much more of a challenge and it's that much more rewarding to aim for beauty than to just go shoot up a school because you're upset. It's so easy to be a dick It's really the easiest thing in the world. And actually, sometimes it can be hard to be a dick when you really need to, to the people who need to hear it. But ultimately, it's easy to become embittered. How easy is that? We know it's easy because nearly everyone does it. 
And I do believe at our fundamental core, we are good and we do seek harmony. But the world embitters us and it makes us forget the humanity of the man or woman next to us. And it makes us, or rather we let it make us, become walled off, become cruel, become impatient, become unsympathetic and unempathetic. Because it's easier. It's easier to do that than to choose beauty, to choose kindness, to choose empathy, to choose to listen. But when we accept everything the way that it is, in that word, in that word's the secret, acceptance. When you accept something, it no longer has a hold over you. It's no longer able to sink its hooks into you and make you feel guilty, make you feel helpless and make you feel sick. You may still be angry. You may still be upset. But you're accepting these things. You're accepting your anger. You're accepting your sadness. And all of a sudden, these things become productive. All of a sudden, these things tap into that powerful part of yourself. They make you better able to relate to your common man. Or they give you energy to do the things that you want to do. These things become a force for transformation rather than an obstacle. Rather than something blocking the road. They create new paths for you to take. Because in your acceptance, now you've seen the forces neutral almost. You've seen these forces of anger and sadness and hate and bitterness as neutral. It's energy. It manifests to you in these different ways. It's how it feels. It's the... It's how reality feels when it takes these different shapes, but now you can use it. You can put it into a poem. You can put it into a book. You can accept that everyone is going through what you're going through, and that it's not always all about you. That this is a general theme of human existence, that we're all prey to that. And in that acceptance, empathy is fostered. Connection to fellow man, a feeling of distinct... Rather than separateness, you feel it, a sense of belonging, a sense of completeness, a sense of being part of the universe rather than struggling against it. And you realize the shortness of your life and how little time you have to make an impact. And a part of that acceptance might be the reason why I'm having this conversation with you right now. And so I think that's a beautiful precept and I think it's a great way to kick things off. Number two, do not seek pleasure for its own sake. And this is a reminder, I don't have any notes. I'm going off the top because uh, to me, spontaneity, it represents how you really feel. I think that spontaneity is the highest form of honesty. And so... I feel good when I'm spontaneous because I feel like I'm expressing myself as close to the unfolding of the moment as possible, if that makes any sense. There's no disconnect. There's no filter. It just happens. It's just straight away. The rubber meets the road and there's no hiding. And so when I think about not seeking pleasure for its own sake. I think of a quote and I'm, I forget who said it, okay? But you could easily Google this and it's uh, someone who's not driven by a deep sense of purpose will distract themselves with pleasure. And that's so fascinating because if you think about our culture... We have the West, and there's not a huge distinction between East and West now because the influence is so strong and wide now of Western society. There's a kind of weekend culture. So you work your five days, and you live for the weekend. And on the weekend, in general, obviously I'm speaking in generalities, you let loose, you drink you dance, you go out, you spend your money, you escape, 
you take your favorite little pills, <laughs> you do all the debaucherous things that you, is that a word, debaucherous? Do all those things that you repress throughout the week. And it's almost like you have put your life off until the weekend. Just suffer, just get through this week. Ah, oh, TGIF. TGIF, it's Friday. You know what that means? It means I've got about 48 to 56 hours to just get drunk and forget about all the bullshit that I've had to put up this week. All the dignity that I've given away. All the lies I've said. All the hours I've spent sitting on the toilet on my phone because I don't want to work. And so... Do not seek pleasure for its own sake. When you seek pleasure for its own sake, in a sense, it implies that you have nothing higher to live for. So, and look, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking pleasure. And I don't know if I'm going to agree with everything Musashi writes here. And I think that's good. I think if you agree with everything someone says, either you elect you lack the ability to critically think for yourself or you or you the courage to inquire and to live in a chaotic world where you don't exactly know what's right you need to have courage to inquire you need to think things through and so when i think about seeking pleasure for its own sake i don't think it's bad to seek pleasure i think pleasure is okay this life offers many things to us. This life offers just a smorgasbord of experience. From the most incomprehensibly awful and revolting experiences to the most indescribably sublime experiences beyond anything words could conjure. And we have both of those extremes and we have everything in between and so to seek pleasure to me would be to have a balanced life what other sake is there in pleasure than its own sake the thing is when we seek pleasure we often take destructive routes to that pleasure and we find pleasure in things that are not meaningful, they're not difficult. For example, there's nothing easier than just um, putting drugs in your mouth. And look, I'm not against drugs. And <laughs> I actually hate talking about drugs and using the word drugs. It's because of the connotations associated with the word. But I've done, I've done many of the drugs and many of them have been amazing experiences and many of them I won't forget. But... These peak human experiences are facilitated by quick and easy means. And we often talk about the come down of drugs. Oh, what did I say? What did I do? Oh, I blacked out. Oh, I feel terrible now. The dopaminergic pathways of your brain have been fried. You're so tired. You feel terrible. And it takes you four days to get over that big night out. And... You could easily make the argument that you could easily make the argument that that's because there was no meaning in what you did. You don't have any meaning to sustain you once the high wears off. The high was like its own end, its own means, and there was no overarching narrative through which you could view that experience other than a selfish desire to forget basically to forget yourself. A selfish desire to transcend the very thoughts and habits and belief systems that make you feel so bad on a day-to-day -day basis. And the come down is heightened, or rather, you feel so low because it's like a coming back down to earth. You're like, oh, back. Here I am, stuck with myself again stuck with my problems, stuck with my failures, stuck with my inadequacies, 
stuck with this boring job, stuck with this lack of prospect, lack of hope for the future, stuck with these family members I don't like, stuck with these friends who don't respect me, stuck with my excuses, stuck with my hour-long toilet breaks at work. (laughs) And because we're so habituated to create these narratives about ourselves we spiral we feel bad when we feel bad bad thoughts are attracted we hone in on the bad thoughts we identify with the bad thoughts we ascribe them to ourselves yes this is me the loser who has no hope in life has bad friends a boring job and then the cycle continues bad creates bad creates bad and All we really want is to go back to feeling how we felt when we were high. And then you see the continuation. You see the up and the downs, like an ECG monitor. Yeah. And we get to that, like that super low point, the Mariana Trench. We start coming back up. We get high again. Oh, we feel so good. I understand everything now. I love everyone. I love everything. I feel connected to the world. My mind's finally quiet. I feel good about myself. Look at all these good traits that I have. Oh, I'm back down, back down. Oh, shit, I'm back in my job. Oh, I'm a loser. I'm a loser that just takes drugs to escape. And it's just, it's so self-defeating. And there's the warning in seeking pleasure for its own sake because you don't have any sustaining meaning. Can you think to a time when you had a clear goal? Can you think to a time when you had a clear, sustaining, overarching ideal? Can you think of a time when you felt connected to the world? Maybe you were in love. Maybe you had a child. Maybe you had someone you were responsible for. Maybe you had a career prospect. Maybe you were going to travel. And for a time, nothing could bother you. No matter what, because you had this thing to sustain you. You weren't so frivolous in seeking pleasure because there was a pleasure in the process of working your way towards that thing. Or rather, your eyes were open to the beauty of the process because you felt so good about whatever was going on in your life. That kind of pleasure is sustainable because it doesn't ask It doesn't ask anything of you beyond your day-to-day. It doesn't ask anything more of you than wake up, show up, do what needs to be done, and everything will take care of itself. Everything is light. Everything is beautiful. Everything is easy. We've all had those moments, or I would hope that we've all had those moments where everything just seems to click and everything just seems to flow. And usually I find that That's because we've got a deep sense of assurance in what we're doing. We're confident that what we're doing is first and foremost productive, uh, that it brings us a sense of fulfillment, that we're actually getting things done. We can see progress happening. We can see ourselves moving towards something. We're not blown about by the whims of fate. We feel a sense of agency. We feel a sense of courage. We feel a sense of growing stronger and if we can engage this feeling if we can if we can really if we can really get in touch with the fact that that is the optimal point of human experience when we are in love with the process and not trying to get anywhere rather we're not trying to escape the moment that we're in but we're fully committed to it then seeking pleasure is just another part of your routine. You're not seeking pleasure to escape where you're at. Rather, it's like an icing on the cake. You have a wonderful week pursuing your... Whatever whatever it is, but you have a wonderful week doing the thing that you know you were put here to do. And then you have some pleasure on the side. And 
there's a good chance you might even not want to take up the offer on that pleasure because you'd rather just go straight back to doing what you've been doing all week anyway. And I think that's what is being said in this precept. It's don't seek pleasure. Seek a purpose. Seek a goal. Seek something worthy of spending your life. Seek something that you want to do each day. It might not be easy. For example, this podcast is not easy. Talking right now, it's not easy. I'm using a lot of energy to think. I'm using a lot of energy to articulate and to like work through these concepts. And the whole time I'm thinking, am I going off track? Am I saying the wrong thing? Is it stupid? Is it relatable? Am I understood? Am I repeating myself? It's a very intense process, but it's very meaningful to me because I believe in what I'm doing. Because I've listened to people for so long who've done things similar to this and I've learned so much from them. And so I know that if I keep at it, not only am I helping other people, this is helping me. This is helping me become a better thinker and a better communicator. And it's, I'm putting myself out there. I'm living, living in the in that place of uncertainty where growth happens, where creativity happens. I have no desire for pleasure when I'm in this state because this is this kind of pleasure is worth it on its own. It's not easy. I didn't necessarily want to do it before I started, but here I am. And I find when you don't have something like that, you will seek pleasure as an escape. And and in a sense, or in its essence, that's seeking pleasure for its own sake. Pleasure as pleasure to avoid pain. So that's number two. Number three. Do not, under any circumstances, depend on a partial feeling. Well, that one's not easy. But I think I know what he's saying. And it doesn't really matter, right? Because that's why we're discussing it. Because we can never know exactly what someone's saying, right? They're just finger pointing once again. And it might look like they're pointing at the moon, but they're pointing at the dark patch of space behind it or the morning star or, you know, whatever celestial body. And we do our best to take what's said, but we know that there's some meaning to it because of the source that it comes from. Or there might be no meaning to it, but we do our own investigation because of the source that it comes from. And we see if we can extract something beneficial to us. And so, do not under any circumstance depend on a partial feeling. If I was to, if I was to bet money, I would say he's talking about when we make decisions or we act rashly, when we have an incomplete picture of the situation. So, say you're doing business with someone and something feels a bit off. Like you're like, oh, I, think, I think this lady's shafting me. I think that she's uh, trying to lowball me or she doesn't really have the product and she's going to scam me and then when I send her the money, she's going to disappear. Something like that. If you depend on that partial feeling, you could potentially ruin one of the best business relationships of your life because you might be you might be depending on old instincts you might have been ripped off once before in your life badly and you really struggle to trust people and this lady might be exhibiting some of the signs and symptoms or you might even be reading into her behavior beyond what she's actually showing you and if you act rashly and you cut her off or you accuse her of cheating you or you um, uh, any decision you make that might jeopardize the business relationship, 
if you do so on a feeling or on a suspicion, you could actually be stepping on your own toes. And I think we've done it before. Like something's happened. We've thought someone's been responsible. We've accused them of it. Turned out it had nothing to do with them at all. Um, We feel terrible about it. They're upset at us. They don't trust us anymore. Takes a while for them to open back up. We feel like an idiot. We might have even lost friends over things like this. We might have thought uh, our partner's sleeping with someone else. We might have thought that uh, someone's holding back from us. We might have thought that our friends don't like us and they're talking behind our back. And if we act on these feelings, or rather, if we, if we view them as the truth, rather than just see them for what they are, a suspicion, a feeling, an intuition, a thought. We're actually acting in an unskillful way. We're acting in a way that makes us not only impulsive, it makes us weak. Because we're coming from a place of fear. We're coming from a place of egocentrism. Like, oh, I'm so important. Or my issues are so... My issues take precedence over other people's feelings. Stuff like that. So if you depend on those feelings in your affairs, and that is to say, to clear that up, if you take things to be true, where you have an incomplete picture, then you're going to make many, many mistakes and you're going to leave a trail of burned bridges in your wake. And we can extend that to other things. If we think about religion, if we think about things like astrology, if you have a suspicion or a thought or a feeling that something is true and you base your whole life around it, you're being extremely unskillful because if you base your life around it and then it turns out to be true, you get some new information, you have a crisis, something happens that shakes your faith, you now exist in turmoil because the very thing you built an identity around is no longer able to sustain you because it doesn't exist anymore. The ground beneath your feet has disappeared and you're falling. And that's why you can't depend on a partial feeling. And in this world, while you can't have certainty in anything, you also, you can act without certainty and you can act without requiring faith in something. The only faith you really need to have is that things are happening exactly as they're supposed to. And that's easier said than done, and that takes a long time of introspection and meditation. But when you create a framework for yourself that may or may not be true, what you're actually doing is you are saying, I don't have the strength to cope with reality, so I'm going to create something that I can use as a crutch to get me through the day. To allow me to act. And there may be situations in life where this is necessary. Like maybe it's better to be doing something under false assumptions than to do nothing. And that's another discussion. But ultimately, it's all guesswork. And if you take your guesswork seriously, you set yourself up for failure because it's guesswork. The percentage of it being true is actually absurdly low. If you think of how many registered religions there are, for example, 
and I'm not trying to harp on religion. And I actually think religions can all be pathways to truth if you go beneath all the cultural programming. And once again, don't get obsessed with the pointing fingers, but actually go straight to the source. But if you think of how many registered religions there are, if you can be sure about any single one of them, I think you've played yourself. Because you might have a story about a visitation or a mystical experience, whatever you like. A beautiful, transcendent experience that told you this religion was the one. But an intellectually honest person would see that for as many religions as there are, there's a devotee of that religion with the same story as you, with the same conviction as you. And an intellectually honest person would know that that other person believes in their conviction every little bit as much as you do. They saw the prophet. They saw the Buddha. They saw Lao Tzu. They saw Krishna. You know, they saw Zoroaster. <laughs> they saw Christ. They saw angels. It spoke to them. It talked to them. It showed them a vision, an image. And so many millions slash billions of people throughout history have had similar stories, similar experiences, transcendent experiences, religious experiences across the full spectrum of religion itself. So, if you're being intellectually honest, either all religions have an aspect of truth in them, but there cannot be one single truth on that basis. Rather, that's the truth as it appears to you. The same truth with different clothes on. If that makes sense. And it, it makes sense to me. And to think of an example. Which I actually can't right now. <laughs> but when I think of all the different religions. I, at least the ones I'm familiar with. They come, they come from a genuine place. There's some religions like. Let's just say it. Scientology. That if you look at the, if you actually scrutinize the origins of it, you can see that it's quite ridiculous. And I confess a certain level of ignorance to the intricacies of Scientology, but there are charlatans in this world and there are liars and there are people who take advantage of others, and there is mental illness in this world. There are people who cannot perceive the world correctly. They struggle with uh, uniting or rather separating their inside and outside world. These things do exist. However, if you look at the spectrum of religion, they're sort of pointing to that same truth. They all seem to me to be pointing to living your life in a prosperous way that is in harmony with your environment, to not being attached to what happens, to letting things come and go, to accepting that you will have good fortune and you will have ill fortune, to put others above yourself, to love others as you would love those closest to you, to love your neighbor. And beyond that, they all point to that space of silence. And silence is where truth is because silence is the... What's the word I'm looking for? It's the, the ordinate principle. It's the first. It's the prime. Silence, the quiet. It's the start. It's the beginning. It's the foundation from which all things spring. Sound emerges from the silence. Silence does not emerge from sound. 
Silence is the base, it's the ground, it's the root, and it's present in all religion, the silence of God's tomb. And so, in religion we see all this finger pointing, but people get so caught up in the fingers, and so they become a cult, they become worshippers of the finger, And when you can bird's eye view the whole situation, it becomes almost comical. When you can disentangle yourself from the egoic need to identify with something, to be a part of the tribe, to be right, to know the truth, to have certainty. Once you can distance yourself from that, you can see the comical nature of people getting sucked into finger worship. And that's really the best term I can think of to describe it, is finger worship. And the beautiful, timeless truth to which those fingers are pointing goes unnoticed. Or perhaps it's not the main focus. And yet, enter any temple or any synagogue. And... At certain times, it's a place of complete silence and contemplation. And so it's... Seek not to depend on running things through the filter of an ideology or a religion or any kind of guideline. You can set yourself. You know what you want to 